Hello and welcome to Screen Cleaning here on BYU Radio, the show that is all about shining a spotlight on all that is good in entertainment. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wissinger. And we are here each and every week on BYU Radio to give you the very best in entertainment. You can download our podcast and review past episodes of the show. Just Google Screen Cleaning Podcast. We have so many episodes that you can go back and listen to. Cole and I don't often agree on very many movies, but uh, one thing that we can agree on is that we just love movies. Isn't that right, Cole? It is. And we found a couple movies just last week on the program that we both agreed on. And one of the little things that came up as as we were talking prompted our discussion for this week. We found one of those actors had a couple great movies in the same year. And so we asked ourselves and turned it into a show as we do around here. What actor had the best year? for coming out with movies. And that's what we will be talking about after, of course, we get to the best news of the week. Nicole, this is a very sensitive time in our country right now, not only with the coronavirus that's been going on, but also there's just a lot of civil unrest, right? Um, there's a lot of a lot of steam behind uh, Black Lives Matter, that movement, and emotions are running high right now, right? So I was actually happy to see this announcement come out if there's going to be a remake made of one of my favorite shows of all time the wonder years and they're going to be producing it with a black family at the center of the story i think that's a fantastic idea Uh, there was an interview with danica mckellar who played winnie on the wonder years if you remember and she talked about how yeah there was kind of we didn't really broach that subject and what Life was like for African-Americans during the 1960s. There certainly would have been plenty of material that they could have utilized for that show. So Lee Daniels, you know, who gave us Lee Daniels, The Butler, and all of these other important films that uh, focus on the lives of African-Americans is going to be behind this black version of The Wonder Years. And I got to tell you, I'm super excited. I think it'll work and I think it'll be great. I think the Wonder Years, I'm always, always cynical when it comes to rebooting TV shows because it rarely, rarely works. But the Wonder Years might be the one that does because it relied on nostalgia in the first place, right? It kind of set itself in the 80s but said we're looking back 20 years to when we were kids in the 60s. And so if the way they're doing this is – We're setting it right now in the 2020s and we're looking back to the 90s or we're looking back to the 80s. I think it could be a a decent way to do it. You know, Cole, you shared with me another piece of news about a reboot of sorts from a film that, speaking of the 90s, came out in 1993 and... uh, It's Groundhog Day. What can you tell us about that? So rumor has it that we are going to get a Groundhog Day TV show. And that rumor comes from none other than an actor from the original movie, Stephen Tobolowsky. Ned! Ryerson! Neil knows Ned. Ned the head. Come on, Cole. Case Western High! Yeah, that that Stephen <laughs> Tobolowski, he has been on record saying that he was reached out to uh, with the possibility of reprising his role in a Groundhog Day TV show, which the time loop concept, I think, lends itself so well to TV because you can just it writes itself. You do the same thing every week. Sure. 
And, you know, he actually recently reprised that role in a Super Bowl commercial. Bill Murray was in it. Uh, Stephen Tobolowsky was in it. I think uh, I think Bill Murray's brother was even in it, who plays the mayor of Punxsutawney. So, I, I mean, they're certainly they've got the costumes lined <laughs> up and they've brushed off their, you know, they brushed up on their characters. So I don't think it would be too difficult. I would be more than shocked to see Bill Murray appear in a television show about Groundhog yes, Day. Yes, that, that was kind of the consensus around the internet as you search it. The Bill Murray, nothing nothing really is official yet, but I thought you, being the fan of Groundhog Day that you are, would enjoy that little piece of news. Well, I would certainly check it out. You're absolutely right. So it's all. I feel like all the news today is kind of about nostalgia because... We've got news that Elizabeth Banks has signed on to play Mrs. Frizzle in The Magic School Bus. Now, is this going to be a live action version of The Magic School Bus? Yes. So there's already a Netflix reboot of the television show and Kate McKinnon voices Miss Frizzle's like sister in that one. Uh, But this is the live action movie that they're working on that Elizabeth Banks is now tied into uh, playing the main character. And also she's a producer on as well. Of course she is. She's I mean, she is a businesswoman for sure. When she came out with Charlie's Angels, she starred in it, wrote it, produced it, directed it. She's all over the place with that. And she's doing great things. She knows what she's Um, doing. More nostalgia. We got, I mean, some bittersweet news for horror fans like you, Cole, right? That Halloween kills because of everything that's going on in the world has been. Uh, put off to 2021. However, the director of the next film, Halloween Kills, did give us a very brief trailer that I think is a pretty good teaser. Yeah, the 12th movie in this franchise was supposed to come out this Halloween, but it got pushed back. But to whet our appetites, to make sure that we're still going to go in 2021, uh, we got the little teaser. At, you know, nothing surprising. We got to see Jamie Lee Curtis. We got to see Michael Myers. And then the big news, I think, is that we confirmed that Halloween ends, which is going to be the 13th movie uh, or the, I guess, third or fourth in a trilogy anyway the the way that they ignore their sequels is unique to halloween anyway that one is still confirmed for 2022 so we're gonna get back-to-back halloweens with back-to-back halloween movies i'm okay with that i can wait put it in the oven a little bit let it bake for a little longer and i will enjoy okay well cole any other news that we want to talk about today we talked about Netflix before, but later this month, we will officially be getting the second season of The Umbrella Academy, based on the Dark Horse comics. And I I enjoy this show particularly because it's visually weird, like a comic book, like a graphic novel. Uh, but also the music in this show is amazing. And so as we head out to commercial, we're going to listen to one of the original songs from the lead singer of My Chemical Romance, who, by the way, wrote the comic book that this is based on and is a producer on the TV show. Music is a huge part of the show, and this is the new song that they wrote for this season of Umbrella Academy. You're listening to Screen Cleaning. Two 
And the first actor that we thought of, of course, when we thought of who has had the best year in movie history, it has to be Jim Carrey in 1994. Just like when we talked about superior sequels and we started with Star Wars because it's just the right answer, how Empire Strikes Back improved upon and just blew that franchise into the next stratosphere uh, or into a galaxy far, far away, if you will. (laughs) Jim Carrey's 94 is the correct answer here. Everything else is an honorable mention, but we are getting right off the bat with The Mask, Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, and Dumb and Dumber, all in 1994 for Jim Carrey. It's unmatched. Yeah, absolutely. Ace Ventura, Pet Detective came out... On February 4th, 1994. This was certainly not the first film that Jim Carrey had appeared in, but this is the one that got things going for him. It was made for $15 million. Okay. It made $107.2 million. Again, $107 million doesn't seem a whole like a whole lot today, but in back in 1994, especially with a $15 budget, where if you try to keep in mind as the general rule of thumb, you have to double uh, your how do I explain this? In order to be profitable, you have to admit you have to make at least twice as much as you spent on the movie, right? Yeah, Cole? that makes sense. So it, it did quite well. And uh Me, as an 11-year-old boy, seeing Jim Carrey act as a buffoon, as Ace Ventura Pet Detective, was one of the greatest things that I could see on screen. And as an 11-year-old, wasn't quite 13 to see that movie that was rated PG-13, I almost felt like I was getting away with something, right? But uh, even to this day, I could go back and watch this movie and find it to be quite hilarious. There are certainly some content issues that you would need to watch out for in this film, but... uh, It didn't end there, Cole, because then in the summer of that year, we got The Mask, uh, July 29th, 1994. This film uh, was the biggest of the three films that we're going to talk about. And the best. made for two. Okay, okay, that's arguable. $23 million budget. It made $351.6 million, Cole. And I know it's no surprise that you like this one the best because it's based on a comic book, right? It's based on a Dark Horse comic. And uh, this is the perfect vehicle for Jim Carrey to show off all those crazy characters and voices that he does under this big 
green mask. And it's very cartoony. It's very fast and funny. And it's no surprise that it was a huge hit. When Why you watch, is this your favorite of the three, Cole? When you watch Ace Ventura, it's just a normal guy playing an idiot. And when you watch Dumb and Dumber, which will come up later in the, in the year 94, he's specifically playing an idiot next to Jeff, Dan- Jeff, Jeff Daniels. Yes, not Jeff Bridges, also playing <laughs> an idiot. But in The Mask, he kind of has an excuse to be cartoony, right? Jim Carrey is a an overactor, as we talk about, and, and I don't think he's ever really matched what he had during this year. Um, but the subject matter fits. Now, the Dark Horse comic is much darker than what The Mask ends up being. The Mask ended up being, you know, a nice more or less family-friendly affair where he just kind of does some wacky antics and he loves old cartoons and and riffs on Tex Avery a little bit, whereas the actual comics, the movie adaptation could have been much more sinister, right? But they adapted it well, made some changes, made it so that, you know, the, the mask was just enhancing the good guy of Stanley Ipkiss, and I think it worked out. And, you know, it's interesting, Cole, because I think critics took notice because of his seven Golden Globe nominations, this was his first one was for The Mask, Best Actor, Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy. What shocks me about that isn't that he was nominated here. It's that Jim Carrey got nominated six other times because I I mentioned (laughs) it, but I think 94 was certainly his apex. And I'm not sure if I've liked anything he's been in since the mask is still my favorite jim carrey performance and i think the only one that i really like like out of his whole filmography so the other ones really quick that he was nominated for were liar liar Meh. the truman show eh. for which he for which he won that one's, uh, that one's in 1999 mm-hmm. 98 in 2000 well the uh yeah it was a 98 release the yeah, right. the awards are 99. Yeah. The very next year, he was in Man on the, the Man on the Moon and won the Golden Globe for that as well. A more serious uh, take. 2001, How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Meh. 2005, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless that Mind. That one makes sense. Not my personal favorite, but people love it. And then 2019, his glorious return to television, uh, Kidding, nominated for Best Actor in a Television Series, Musical, or Comedy. All right. But The Mask is what started out his uh, critical acclaim, right, Cole? This next movie of his in 1994 wasn't necessarily a critical darling, but I do think that there were plenty of critics who thought it was so stupid that it was actually smart. Um, and you kind of have to see the movie to understand it, in my opinion. You anyway. also have to be like 13 to 16 to enjoy it as well. Or 11 years old, yeah. as I was when I saw it. Uh, on December 16th, 1994, Dumb and Dumber was made for $17 million, and it made $247.3 million. These three films, all released in 1994, catapulted Jim Carrey to instant fame. He got, at that time, was considered a uh, pretty high uh, paycheck for a movie, he got $7 million to be in Dumb and Dumber. And it it just went up from there, Cole. His paychecks just got bigger and bigger with each movie to where now I think he can command anywhere from $20 million for each movie. But uh, this, is, this was a very good year for Jim Carrey, as we've already established. 
And then while Jim Carrey was crushing 1994 kind of across the across movies, Tim Allen, as you kind of mentioned in your little song, was having a very specific time in 1994 where he was at the top of the box office with the Santa Claus. He had the top rated TV show, you know, in the Nielsen ratings with Home Improvement. And his book was actually a New York Times bestseller all during 1994. In the same week, too, Cole. Exactly, yeah. And just to give you some perspective, we just talked about how much money Jim Carrey was making for those movies. Tim Allen uh, was, he ended up with getting paid on Home Improvement. He ended up getting paid $1.25 million per episode. So 1994, pretty good year for Tim Allen as well. It's interesting as we looked through, though, how certain actors found their moment in a specific year. And so, yes, Jim Carrey is certainly the correct answer. And Tim Allen is a fun little trivia question to know about his particular moment in 94 as well. But, Jeff, what would you say might challenge or or what as we race to number two, who had the second best year, who would you put forward? Oh, goodness. Um, I mean, there are plenty of actors who have received multiple Academy Award nominations in the same year, which is certainly admirable. But I'm guessing you're going to go with somebody that kind of kickstarted the MCU. Am I getting close? Okay, I I can certainly talk about Robert Downey Jr. if that's where we want to go. He he was Oscar nominated for one of his performances and it wasn't the comic book movie here. Uh in 2008, Robert Downey Jr. kick restarted his career. Not only did he start the MCU as we know it today and and it's made, you know, quite a bit. Of, we talked about the money Jim Carrey was making in 94 and that those movies were bringing home in the box office. Um, Robert Downey Jr. has done a little bit better over the past 11 years of Marvel movies, <laughs> but it all started in, 2000, in summer of 2008 with Iron Man 1. Also that summer, though, Tropic Thunder, he was, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for that role, and it's a movie that I, you know, as a teenager, really, really enjoyed. Yeah, that was a very good year for him and really kind of the start of something sweet and beautiful for Robert Downey Jr. going forward. And he's continued to return to that role uh, for lots of money and has continued to bless us all with his presence as Tony Stark on the big screen, for sure. I think one of the coolest Uh, things about when Downey did it is that his career had hit kind of a lull he has he had a history of drug problems that he's talked about and so this was the first time where we really saw an actor come back in a strong way from that and dominate the box office for a short time the very next year he had sherlock holmes guy ritchie's which Mm -hmm. i i know that you are a a fan of huge fan of and so the fact that his whole career was kind of coming around in a moment was another thing i looked at matthew mcconaughey Known for just kind of being laid back, dazed and confused. All right, all right, all right. It started his career because he wasn't even an actor. He just kind of showed up. He was good looking. He was laid back. But between dazed and confused and 2012, kind of the start of his reconnaissance, were some (laughs) different roles. But 
all of a sudden things came together again with Mud, Magic Mike, Dallas Buyers Club, Wolf of Wall Street, and Interstellar all in the course of a couple years. And then on television, True Detective got him awards claim as well. Yeah, man. Great time for Matthew McConaughey as well. So, you know, there's this one actor, Cole, that I feel like every movie I see he's in. I mean, I can't shake this guy because he's just showing up everywhere. And it's not the it's not a bad thing because he's been in some really good movies and some of his performances I haven't liked as much as the others. But 2015 was a wonderful year for an actor named Domhnall Gleeson. Now, you might recognize his father, Brendan Gleeson, who has appeared in a number of big films. He was Mad-Eye Moody in the Harry Potter movies. He was uh, Knuckles McGinty in Paddington Paddington 2. Yeah. But his son, Domhnall Gleeson, has been showing up everywhere. And in 2015, he was in uh, four big movies, two of which were nominated for Best Picture, one of which uh, another one was almost nominated for Best Picture. Best Picture. He was in Ex Machina, Brooklyn, Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and The Revenant. Huge year for Domhnall Gleeson. So if if you're trying to uh, place who he is, he's the redheaded General Hux in these new Star Wars movies. Yeah. Three other uh, amazing movies that year. Ex Machina, the one that didn't get nominated, my favorite of the whole year. Yeah. And you'll certainly recognize him from here on out, because like I said, he just appears in everything. If you've got little kids, you'll recognize him as the offspring of Mr. McGregor, who inherits the farm and those dumb Peter Rabbit. How did we get a second Peter Rabbit movie, Jeff? You know, what the first there? one is is not as bad as you would think. It's it's semi watchable. It, it is worse than I. It it might be my least favorite movie I've seen in like the past ten years. <laughs> I did not like that. But Domino Gleason in twenty fifteen had had a pretty good year. I agree with you there for sure. Um, I made right. fun of the McConaissance coming back. More recently, we had a Keanuissance when Keanu Reeves was just. Everywhere we looked, not only was he in movies all over the place in 2019, but we were getting news about him every other week. You know, we got new images for Bill and Ted 3 that were coming out. We had Matrix 4 confirmed. And all the while in theaters, he had John Wick Chapter 3, his own action franchise that he was carrying. Uh, He showed up as himself in the Netflix movie Always Be My Maybe. And um, a fictional version of himself. Yeah. an exaggerated version of himself in all sure, his maybe. Go. And Toy Story 4, my favorite role he had that year as Duke Kaboom. Or Nuke Duke Kaboom. No, Duke Kaboom. Yeah. 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 The, the little toy in Toy Story 4 that uh, is a basically evil Knievel uh, and helps them along their journey. Well, yeah, Cole. I mean, everybody loves them some Keanu these days. And uh, I'm excited for when Bill and Ted will come out. That might be one of the few movies that we get to see this summer, depending on what's going on with the movie theaters. Still and on the schedule for August. Studios. Yeah, well, they'll they'll probably move it again. Yeah. But uh, I want to talk about 2017. And, and later on in the program, we are going to talk about the best years in cinema. But the reason I want to talk about 2017 here is because for several actors, it was a very good year. 2017 was always notable to me when I took a look at the Best Picture nominees and saw some through lines uh, for all these movies in the actors that appeared in the films. So I just want to mention several actors, six to be exact, 
that appeared in at least two Best Picture nominees in 2017. Tracy Letts appeared in Lady Bird and The Post. Tracy Letts, if you're not sure who he is, he also had a very good year uh, a couple years after that. In fact, just this last year, when he appeared both in Ford versus Ferrari and Little Women, both of which were also nominated for Best Picture in that year. So Tracy Letts is somebody you might recognize. Bradley Whitford uh, was also in The Post, and he was the father in the family in uh, Get Out. Lucas Hedges had a fantastic year in 2017. I do remember I do remember noticing that one. That was he was in Lady Bird as well and Manchester by the Sea I think was the year before, right? Sure, and he was nominated then, uh-huh. but he also appeared in 2017 uh in Three Billboards Outside yeah, Ebbing, yeah, Missouri. Yeah. That's right. Timothy Chalamet was also in Lady Bird and he was in the film Call Me By Your Name. And uh, this one stood out to me because this this guy is creepy. At least in Get Out, he was creepy. Caleb Landry Jones was the brother in the family in Get Out. And he was also an unfortunate victim of the abuse of uh, Sam Rockwell in Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. And then this actor of all of these had the best year in 2017, an actor named Michael Stolbarg. Does that name sound familiar to you, Cole? Not off the top of my head. Somebody that shows up in all sorts of movies that, you know, you see him and you think, where have I seen that guy before? He appeared in three Best Picture nominees. And in fact, he appeared in the film that ultimately won Best Picture that year. He was in Call Me By Your Name. He was in The Post. And he was in the Best Picture winner, the Shape of Water. No, that, that's so, why that name was familiar. I remember that little piece of trivia as soon as you started listing off those films. I, I can picture him now. Right. So all six of those actors had a very good year in 2017. And this idea of being in all of these nominated films led me to think about other actors who have been in a lot of films that have been nominated for best picture. So I just want to give you a little quiz, Cole. Oh boy. Let's start let's start by going with a list of actors who have appeared in the most best picture Oscar nominees. Okay. This is from a list from IMDb. Who would you say is number 1 on the list of actors who have appeared in the most best picture Oscar nominees? My answer is some character actor I've never heard of. No. No, it... now if you, we'll get to that list in a second, Cole, okay. because there are two different lists. We're talking Oscar-nominated Best Picture films and Oscar-winning Best Picture films. Okay. So let's just go with the ones that were nominated for Best Picture. This person you should be well familiar with. How about John Wayne? John Wayne. Interesting. I'm scrolling down. I'm scrolling down. Oh. I don't really see John Wayne anywhere on this list. So would you like to make any other guesses? Mm, no, I don't think I do. I don't think I know. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, this first actor you'll definitely know, Robert De Niro. He has appeared in 11 films that were nominated Holy. for Best Picture, two of which came out just this last year, Joker and the Irishman, right? That's true. And two of them We've are Godfather. Got... Or, yeah, was De Niro 
Dernier was only he was one not, of the Godfathers, right? Yeah. Yep. Godfather yeah. Part Two, Taxi Driver, The Deer Hunter, Raging Bull, The Mission, Awakenings, Goodfellas, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, and then Joker and the Irishman. You pair with Scorsese, you're going to get there. That makes sense. Oh, for sure. So this is another, the number two is another Hollywood legend who has actually not appeared in a film for a long time. Probably, I think, back in uh, 2008 was the last film he made. Oh, that's that's less of a long time. I was going back to, like, Yul Brenner and some of the other. See, when I, when I think of, like, actors that just showed up in a ton of movies, my mind goes to the early days of Hollywood because it seemed like there were less huge actors and they kept showing up more and more. But now we also have more Best Picture nominees every year. That kind of balances it out. Jack Nicholson, number two. Gotcha. Five Easy Pieces, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Chinatown, Reds, Terms of Endearment, Broadcast News, Prizzy's Honor. I don't remember him in Broadcast News. Anyway, A Few Good Men, As Good As It Gets, and The Departed. Uh, And then let's just do number three. This is, uh, he's considered to be an everyman. Everybody loves this guy. He loves In-N-Out Burger. Um, He's kind of. So he's a California actor, shocker. He's kind of the Jim Stewart of our time. So when I got my brain thinking Scorsese, I thought maybe Leonardo DiCaprio, but he's been called many things, and every man is not one of them. So I got number four. I'm going to take that win and let you just tell me who number three is. Tom Hanks. Oh, sure. Tom Hanks with nine. Forrest Gump, Apollo 13, Saving Private Ryan, The Green Mile, Toy Story 3, Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close, Captain Phillips, Bridge of Spies, and The Post. And a lot. So he speaking of uh, frequent collaborators, he's got several on that list that were directed by Steven Spielberg. And Leonardo DiCaprio, half of the movies that he was in were directed by Martin Scorsese. So I think you're onto something there, Cole, with if you can just... Pair up with the right director, you're going to get a lot of nominations or a lot of nominations, right? And you hung out with Tarantino for at least, yeah. That's you find the right director, and your your career is going to be okay. Okay, now I want to share with you another list. This is a list of actors who have appeared in multiple Best Picture Academy Award winners. So these are the films that won, and uh, I had to go to number 19 before I could really recognize anybody on this list, Cole. And to be clear, um, we, you know, we we've talked about on the program before how it used to be five best picture nominees and now it's anywhere between eight and ten or ten. I think they most recently said it can be ten. And uh, back well, in the, the day, the they recent used to have change a lot. is that it will be ten every year. Right. The yeah. the change in 2009 was that it could be up to ten. Right. And back in the day when the Academy uh was the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was first in existence. They also had very many uh, uh, nominees for Best Picture. So it's not too surprising that a lot of these older actors, when there was less competition, I'm sure, appeared in a lot of these films. You ever heard of Franklin Farnham? Nah. He was in seven Best Picture winners. Wallace Clark. Mm-mm. Best Flowers. Nope. Herbert Evans. Nah. Robert Carnes. Uh, I think so. Okay, I'm just going to rattle off a lot of these until yeah, we on. get to the one that was the first one that I really recognized. Harry Allen, Irving Bacon, Billy Bevan, Ward Bond, John Cazale, which did sound a little familiar to me. Does that sound familiar to you, Cole? Possibly. 
We'll come back to him. Eddie Chandler, Heine Con- Conklin, Gino Corrado, Donald Crisp, Harry Davenport, Billy Angle, Mary Field, Rafe Fines. There we go. There we go. Number 19, Rafe Fines has appeared in three Best Picture winners. Let's go back to John Cazale, though, for a second, because John Cazale uh, had a tragically short career. He was only in, Cole, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six. No, he was in five films, Cole, five films. And his career is notable because all five of those films were at least nominated for Best Picture. Three of them won Best Picture. He was Fredo Corleone in The Godfather. So Michael Corleone's little brother, who Mm -hmm. is not the brightest bulb in the bunch, right? Right. Uh, He did that film in 1972. In 1974, he was in The Conversation, also directed by Francis Ford Coppola. In 1974... He did The Godfather Part Two, which won Best Picture, also directed by Francis Ford Coppola. In 1975, he did Dog Day Afternoon. And then in 1978, he was in the last of his Best Picture winners, The Deer Hunter. Uh, and he was actually, um, he was either dating or engaged to Meryl Streep. And he passed away in 1978, tragically, so early. He was only 42 years old. Meryl Street was devastated. and uh, But what a career. Five films, five Best Picture nominees. Can you imagine, Cole? It's a good batting average. Yeah. Well, Cole, this has been so much fun to take a look at the best year of these actors' careers. And uh, when we return... We are actually going to shift our focus just a little bit, and we're going to take a look at some of the best years in film. That's all up next here on Screen Cleaning. A pleasure to meet you, Marcus. (laughs) Likewise, Keanu. Uh, I I love your outfit. Oh, thanks, man. Yeah. Tom Ford made it custom for me. I love the suit. Classic. Thank you. Thank you. It's my uh, old tux from prom. (laughs) That's great. I dropped out of high school, went to work. Followed my dream. With all these movies being pushed back to 2021, that's really shaping up to be a good year in movies if we start getting movies theatrically released. But when the competition comes for best year in movies, it is going to have to go up against, at very least, 1939, which is the year that Gone with the Wind came out, and a few others that we want to talk about right now. You know, if, if you're pining for a time that isn't 2020... Let's talk about some of the greatest years for movies of all time. Right. And I think for a lot of people, not just critics, but I think for a lot of people, 1939 is the year that you've got to focus on, right? Because this is the year where not only was this back during the studio system where they were just cranking them out, and um, but they were cranking out a lot of good ones that year. 1939 gave us The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Gunga Din, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. This was a huge, huge year. 
these are movies. I mean, in that year alone, we we named two films at least that have really stood the test of time. Gone with the Wind is still a film that people revisit frequently, and I would imagine would be very very relevant today with civil rights being a, a pretty big issue right now. But also, there's probably no more timeless movie than The Wizard of Oz. Every time I watch that film, Cole, I think to myself, it's been 80 years, basically, and this movie still holds up. The performances are still so funny. The movie is touching. The movie is scary at parts. And it's just, it's still, it looks great after all these years, Cole. And the art of filmmaking was moving forward in a cool way during this year because, of course, The Wizard of Oz, you know, showed us all what fabulous Technicolor could look like in the wonderful world of Oz. Right. And I've got to tell you, one of my favorite Jimmy Stewart performances, he's one of my favorite actors, by the way, but one of my Jimmy Stewart performances comes from this 1939 film, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Those are the types of characters that I love to see on the big screen. You know, a Mr. Smith, an Atticus Finch, people that are going to stand up to the big bad corporations or big bad government or the system and just are going to stand up for what is right uh, no matter what and are going to act their hearts out and just get you to fall in love with them and cheer for them. That's why I love going to the movies, Cole. I love having experiences where I can cheer, where I can feel, where I can uh, relate to other people. And Jimmy Stewart really gave us such a performance in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And that's another film that every time I revisit that, I just love it even more with each viewing. 1939, I think, was the first year where we got a great whole year, right? There are individually great movies every year in Hollywood, and something's going to win Best Picture no matter what came out. Even in 2020, something they're, they're going to have an Academy Awards. Something will win. But 39 really set the bar. I think my favorite, I'm going to start high here, and, and I've mentioned it, you know, once or twice, is 1999. 39 is known for having a few amazing movies, but I think it's 99's depth. They're, the ones on the bench are what really pull 99 up for me as the greatest movie year of all time. It has the top end, right? Some of my favorite movies, no matter what year they came out, are American Beauty, The Iron Giant, The Matrix, Sixth Sense, Fight Club. But then as you keep going down the list, I can name 20 or 30 from this year that I could watch anytime or that are really, really great movies. I'm not going to just like list movies for you. That's not the most entertaining way to do a podcast, but just go to IMDb or Letterboxd or whatever you do or, or Wikipedia to see what came out in 99 and you will be shocked that they all were there. The Matrix was a big one that year, Cole, and that kind of started these big blockbuster sci-fi movies or it kind of resurged them, right? When he said, I know Kung Fu, you knew that he put a lot of blood, sweat, and tears into that performance and that uh, it even, it's it's just getting better. He's getting better with age, Cole. There are a so lot 19... of like landmark trends that came out during this year. So 
like bullet time and the way action movies are shot were changed by the matrix a new wave of horror was started by the blair witch project where now every other movie seems like they can make it for ten dollars and just shoot it found footage style we wouldn't have any of that without 1999 and then the kind of raunchy teen comedy that came up when i was a teenager we have american pie to thank for which also came out in 1999 yeah, Trends in Galaxy movies. Quest, Toy Story 2. These are some great, great movies that came out that year. The first good Disney sequel. Uh, one of your personal favorites, I can always get a little bit of uh, Jeff Brownie points by mentioning Mystery Men came out in 1999. Yes! Oh my goodness, Cole. I am happy anytime somebody is willing to sit down and chat with me about Mystery Men. Oh, I love that movie. If If you haven't seen it, and you love underdog movies and you love superhero movies. It's a great combination of the two. And it's just flat out silly and fun. you got to watch Mystery Men. And even though the quality wasn't great and people lament that Star Wars came back in such a weak way, you can't deny the box office power that returned when The Phantom Menace came to theaters and how it just became a part of Every part of our life, every time you go to Dairy Queen or McDonald's, the toy you get is going to be Star Wars themed. Every T-shirt that I owned and wore for that entire year had Sith on the back and Jedi on the front. And and Star Wars was back. And yeah, the movie wasn't fantastic, but Star Wars was back in 99. Oh, yeah. And Cole, I think even people that have not seen the movie Fight Club know what the first rule of Fight Club is. That's another movie that came out in 99, and it has certainly stayed in the zeitgeist. And, uh, yeah, I think you're on to something. 1999, big, big, big year. Fight Club, and, and I'll mention just one more short thing about 99 as a year in general, right? 2020 is a year that we're never going to forget because of what all is happening in the world. And it's interesting how our movies reflect the world that we live in. 1999 was a time of prosperity in America, and the main conflict in a lot of the great movies, the ones that I personally love, are just kind of white guys being bored. You know, American Beauty, Fight Club, (laughs) Office Space, being John Malkovich, and The Matrix are all just like an average Joe in a corporate situation that just kind of becomes bored with his life and then adventure ensues from there in in the different ways that it does and so it's interesting to see how movies will reflect what we do in our lives yeah well cole i want to go back a little bit you lamented earlier that uh, we are not going to get to see very many of these big blockbuster movies this summer just simply because they're not releasing them this summer so when i think of big blockbuster movies i think of the year 1975, when we really got a movie that defined the summer blockbuster that got things going with Steven Spielberg's Jaws, which was nominated for Best Picture that year. That was also the year that uh, Milos Forman won Best Director for One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. This is one of the few films to win the big five Oscars. It won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and it also won Best Screenplay. Those are the big five. And you're a horror fan, Cole. You'll certainly appreciate that Brad Dourif 
also appeared in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and was nominated, at least, for his performance in that film. So Dog Day Afternoon was another big movie that was released. And really, this, whenever I think 75, I think big summer blockbusters. This is also uh, a great year for one of my favorite all-time comedies, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Maybe you've heard of it. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, I for me, it doesn't get any better than 1975 and Jaws. One of my, I always go back and forth. Is Jaws my favorite scary movie of all time or is Psycho my favorite scary movie of all times? And uh, that's a good problem to have, Cole, when you can't decide between the two. Well, have I got some scary movies for you then? Because I chose 1984 as my next pick because I think it was the greatest year in the horror genre because a horror can be a, a specific kind of a movie, but I think it also had variety in the movies that came out. Gremlins and Ghostbusters were crowd-pleasing horror comedies or just kind of supernatural elements in blockbusters almost everyone loves ghostbusters but remember it's about hunting ghosts that that kind of count as some kind of horror and then the nightmare on elm street franchise began here in 1984 and the best of the friday the 13th movies that they turned out one every year of the entire 80s the best one came out in 1984 we had a stephen king adaptation with children of the corn chud and and ghoulies kind of filled out the middle range Horror was at its peak in the mid-80s. Well, Cole, I, I can't disagree with you there. I mean, that was a great time to be a horror fan for sure. And I can remember growing up and staying up late watching scary movies with my brother when I was a teenager. And some of them were, you know, genuinely scary, but most of them were pretty awful. And a lot of the awful ones came from the 80s as well. But you wouldn't want it any other way, right, Cole? Horror is interesting because you like it when it's good and you like it when it's bad too. Isn't that interesting? Well, I certainly do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Cole, it's interesting because we've talked about these these years in cinema where um, we have tons of movies that were just so good. But when I think of the year 2007... I just think of one of the biggest rivalries, not even because they didn't like each other, but biggest rivalries as far as two best picture nominees are considered. This is a year when, man, it could have gone either way. Either film was extremely well received by critics. And maybe even the one that lost is the one that more more critics prefer. But this was the year that gave us Not only two of the best films I've seen in a long time, but definitely two of the best villains I've ever seen on screen. 2007 gave us the films No Country for Old Men that introduced introduced me to Javier Bardem and his portrayal of Anton Chigurh. And then uh, Daniel Plainfield, or Daniel, I think it's Daniel Plainfield, was portrayed by Daniel Day-Lewis in There Will Be Blood. No Country for Old Men would ultimately go on to win Best Picture, but both Javier Bardem and Daniel Day-Lewis won Oscars that night for their terrifying portrayals of these characters. I'm not kidding, Cole. I am scared to death of both of these characters. And uh, they play completely different people with different motives, but uh, 
oh man, you can see the evil in their eyes. And the, those Oscars were well-deserved, let's just say. 2007 is the year that Lars and the Real Girl came out, which we talked about yes. on the program just last week. Remember, you can always access our podcast by Google and Screen Cleaning or however you do podcasts. And the fact that Paul Schneider was in Lars and the Real Girl and the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is what put my mind on like a specific year in movies. It's what prompted today's episode. And so you got to mention that both of those also came out in 07. My next pick... We've already talked about today, but outside of Jim Carrey, 1994 was pretty good as well. We talked about his three big ones, but 94 also brought us a Keanu Reeves movie, which I love. Uh, Speed, maybe my favorite action, pure action movie of all time. Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump, and Shawshank Redemption are some of the great ones from 1994. Absolutely. My goodness, Cole. And... I don't know. Maybe there's just something about being 11 and seeing these movies on the screen right at that age when it's like, am I quite old enough to see these movies? Luckily, my dad was not one to shy away from taking me to pretty much every movie. Not the R-rated ones, of course, but uh, I saw a lot of great movies in 1994, and I was a big fan of a lot of those movies. So I'm right there with you on 1994. 94 kind of had a filmmaker uh, emergence as well. Clerks came out that year, which brought us all Kevin Smith for the first time. And I think Tim Burton's first and really only foray that worked into more serious, less Tim Burton-y kind of stuff was Ed Wood, which came out in 1994. Absolutely. Well, Cole, as you know, with each and every show, we like to end things with doing a little panning for good. There's good in them dire hills. Cole, 2009 was another great year in cinema. This, uh, but more specifically, it was a great year for films that were animated. So I want to take a few, uh, just a couple of minutes here to talk about the films that were nominated for best original or best animated feature at the 83rd Academy Awards. This is a year that was really competitive when it came to best animated feature. So this year will always have a soft spot in my heart, Cole, because this is the year after my wife and I were married. So we had only been married, let me see, by the time this film came out, we had only been married for less than a year. And we were not expecting to cry during an animated film, but we certainly did within the first few minutes of Up, which was directed by Pete Docter, was nominated for Best Animated Feature Film, It won Best Animated Feature Film. It was also nominated for Best Picture, which is not something you see a whole lot of animated films being nominated for Best Picture. Yeah, it's not. But Pixar did it a couple years in a row here, right? 2009 comes out. They have Up. It's another Toy Story sequel, Toy Story 3, that gets nominated for Best Picture in 2010. 
And I contend that the best movie that came out in that kind of golden era for Pixar was actually 2008's WALL-E. Uh, unfortunately, it was a casualty of a smaller best picture field along with The Dark Knight that also came out in 2008 that just missed out. Uh, and a reason why we got an expanded best picture field by 2009 that up got to join in. Uh, the only other animated film to be nominated for best picture, Jeffrey? 1991's Beauty and the Beast. 91 was a a pretty decent year in movies as well. Silence of the Lambs, Terminator 2, Beauty and the Beast. Anyway, we're talking about uh, animated movies now, though. 2009. But the reason this year is so uh, noteworthy is because it was up against some other really amazing animated films. Have you seen Coraline Cole? Absolutely. You know the horror fan I am. We started off talking about 1939 and Wizard of Oz. If a kind of twisted animated mind put together the darker version of Wizard of Oz, it would look exactly like Coraline. Absolutely. This alternate universe with this other mother, how she was called, and uh, the dangers that exist in that alternate universe. Fantastic Mr. Fox was a huge critical success uh, from Wes Anderson, his first foray into animation. And it's so quirky and weird that you can't help but just watch it and be fascinated by it. The Princess and the Frog was one of the first Disney movies, really, where we got an African-American princess. And uh, unfortunately, it didn't do as well as it should have, but it was nominated for Best Animated Feature. And then another film that I have I have yet to see, but it's always been on my watch list. I know one of these days I'm going to get around to seeing it. But uh, it's a French, Belgian, Irish film called The Secret of Kells. So that was a year that just gave us a lot of really solid animated films that were really competitive that year. But ultimately, they made the right choice and gave it to a film that I will never forget and that will always hold a soft spot in my heart which is up before before this Pixar CGI style of animation took over, which it did shortly after 2009. There was such a variety in the look of all of these different animated movies. Princess and the Frog was Disney's. It was supposed to be their big return to hand-drawn animation that because it wasn't as commercially and box officely successful, um, they realized that just the economics of making a computer-generated movie were going to be better going forward, and then they went off to Tangled and Frozen and the way Disney movies look nowadays. So Princess and the Frog is this beautiful little time capsule of them trying to go back for just a moment to the Disney classic look that didn't take off, even though the movie itself is beautiful and amazing. Another one, there's a couple that didn't get nominated even that fill out, you know, when you talk about if it's going to be the best, it's got to have a a deep bench and it's got to be good. Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs is such a goofy, fun animated movie. And talk about different animation styles. Zemeckis's A Christmas Carol featuring, of course, can't get away from the guy Jim Carrey. (laughs) <laughs> was also in this year. You know, Cole, I'm glad that you that you mentioned the traditional animation style, the 2D animation, because I always have a huge amount of respect for filmmakers that decide to hold on to that and try to advance that 2D animation style. And I think we got a really good example of that just recently with the film Klaus that they're kind of morphing these different animation styles together, but they're hand drawing these characters still 
And I just love it when animators will take the extra time and you can see it in the detail of the characters on that, that ultimately end up on screen. But yeah, I'm a big fan when animators talking about nostalgia will hold on to that style of animation and give us something that's truly beautiful and now it seems unique because they just don't do it anymore. And it kind of fit the subject matter. Princess and the Frog was a return to those classic princess stories of Disney. Coraline was like an edgy, Tim Burton-y looking animation that fit the edgy feel of that movie. And of course, Wes Anderson's quirk came out in the stop motion of the fantastic Mr. Fox, all of the animation worked. It made sense. And it was all beautiful to look at in 2009, all family friendly movies. Well, Cole, I've had such a wonderful time talking about the best years in actors careers and the best years in movies. And uh, just as you said, Cole, we have so many other episodes that you can look up on our podcast. Just Google screen cleaning podcast. There is so much content there for you to enjoy and uh, kind of compare your opinions with ours. Cole and I certainly compare our op- our opinions on each and every show. We don't always agree on everything in, in terms of movies, but we do agree that we both love the movies. And hopefully 2021 will give us a very good year at the movies. That's going to do it for this episode. I'm Jeff Simpson. And I'm Cole Wessinger. And we'll see you next time on Screen Cleaning. <laughs>